to Derek uh, in a moment. I first met Mr. Mr. Garris in 2006, and I've always wanted to get him over to Oregon because I thought not only was he just, you know, fantastic as a person, to do, a great personality, knowledge on movies, had done some great stuff in the indie industry, and I said he is just perfect for Horizon. So was, at last, finally got Mick Garris over to Horizon. So over to my friend Derek, we'll introduce him. Uh, more formally. Enjoy the rest of the show, guys. I'll talk to you later. The formal introduction. Uh, good evening, everybody. My name is Eric McCarr. Uh, like everybody else here, I'm a friend of Edward King's. You know, it's not. Thirty years. Thirty years. Um, there was always my my mother's thing. Was just like it's okay, but just it's just. Where you've <laughs> That's still be for 30 years. It's been good. So always keep an arms um, I hope you're all having a good marathon. It's an amazing weekend ahead. As Ed was saying, we are tonight joined by a true master of horror, which is never to be taken for granted. And uh, I described him earlier. Uh, we call, and this is my own phrase, I've called him the Peter Bogdanovich of horror, where he's a, a great filmmaker in his own right, but he's a man who is really works very tirelessly to keep the kind of the greater lineage of horror history. He kind of channels it through. He's a podcaster, he's a filmmaker, he's a writer. He's a, a renaissance man, a renaissance man of sorts. He's, he's just, he's, he's been pretty much, uh, you know, if we go through the greater history of horror, he'll pop up here, there, and everywhere. But for the purposes of uh, this evening's conversation, uh, ladies and gentlemen, he is Mick Garris. Let's put on these lapel mics. Hey. So we're gonna put on our lapel. I was going to do it in mine. In the lapel mics for the same ones Janet Jackson used these. Um, that's where we got them. Is that where you got them at, Janet Jackson? Yeah, well, it's actually. Is that why they're slippery? Yeah. <laughs> After the whole Super Bowl thing, they were going cheap. Uh, Mick, Mick Garris, welcome to Dublin, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mick Garris. Thank you. beautiful city and a beautiful festival and uh, I, I could not be more honored to be here so thank you for joining me for a movie that not many people have seen anywhere in the world so I'm, I'm delighted to bring it to you. The kind of the big question is where to begin. Uh, there are random things you need to know about uh, Mick Garris is he has not only worked with Michael Jackson uh, he, on the short film, here's the, he worked with Michael Jackson on the short film Ghosts, written by Stephen King. Right, I was the original director on it for two weeks before Michael disappeared. <laughs> but you were also an extra in Thriller. Not an extra, I'm one of the featured, one of the featured, featured zombies? zombies in Thriller. We are amongst, the, in the presence of royalty uh, Do you tonight. recognize this? <laughs> Did it, yeah, did, it, did it to a kid on the way in, the kid shit himself. It was, it was a beautiful thing to see. Um, he also is the host of the, the, the legendary within horror circles, Master of Horror Dinners. Yes? Yes. So Mick, again, has, has worked in so many different mediums across so, was responsible for the, uh, anyone familiar with the Masters of Horror TV series from Yes? Yeah, that was him. Um, and also, uh, Hocus Pocus. <laughs> to the female contingent here. <laughs> where to begin? This man was on the set of The Thing. Where do we, where do we begin? So here's a good, there's always a good question, because this is the one they always ask, is what was your first, what was the, because the, this is a horror crowd, this is a horror crowd. Is this a horror crowd? 
And um, what was your first seminal, the horror experience that informed you? Really, the first movie I remember seeing in a theater was a drive-in theater in the San Fernando Valley. I'm a native of Los Angeles, one of very few with this color hair. Um, and I actually saw Psycho uh, when I was about seven or eight years old with my family in the station, a Chevy station wagon when it came out in 60, 61 in a, in a drive-in. So never imagined that 30 years later I would be directing Psycho 4. Um, but uh, that was a, a seminal influence, and it took me down this path and into this gutter in which we all uh, are enjoying ourselves. Very comfortably, very comfortably <laughs> reside. Yes. And, you know, in the end, you came into it, and so, because that's the thing, is that you, the one thing that's clear from everything that you've done is this enthusiasm and passion that you still have for the, for the genre. Um, in terms of, of your own, I suppose, like, a, Stephen King would be such a significant creative collaborator through your career. Um, talk, as you know, you've done so much amazing work together, and still, you know, how, how does your dynamic, how does your relationship work, and how did it evolve? Because you collaborated on so many different projects. Well, it started with Sleepwalkers, which hopefully everybody will come and see on Sunday night. Um, and, uh, you know, we, he's a few years older than me, but we're of the same generation. We had a lot of the same influences growing up. Um, we were both raised in tight circumstances by uh, single mothers, um, and uh, we had similar pop culture influences. We watched The Twilight Zone and Outer Limits as kids, read comic books as kids, read Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson as kids. So there was a lot of common ground there. Uh, but even more than that, we just hit it off as friends. and. Um, for whatever reason, uh, I think it's because of the respect for his work. Um, we, we have worked time and time again, uh, and he kept requesting that I, that I come back into the fold. So hopefully that will still continue. It's been a few years since the last collaboration. But I think what draws me to his work is the humanity of it and the fact that, for me, good horror isn't just a, a, a bunch of kids in, in the, a cabin in the woods slashing one another or hiding from a masked stranger, but it's good drama first. And King's books are incredibly great drama, very human, very relatable. They're, they are about people that we know or are, and um, that has, was what drew me to Ray Bradbury and to Richard Matheson, is that it's, even if it may be supernatural, it's set in a very natural world, in a very real world. And uh, I think we have very similar tastes in a lot of things. He's a big sports fan, which I'm not. Um, <clears throat> but uh, we, we share so many uh, opinions and in our tastes, especially within the genre, that it has just been an amazing, fortunate for me, uh, relationship that, that is a friendship and a working collaboration that is something that I cherish. Because you, know. you seem to be at the intersection of so many different worlds of horror. Does anyone listen to Mick's podcast, Postmortem? Yes. Great. Tell your great, friends. Great, great podcast. <laughs> but also these, because even in terms of Master of Horrors, you are a Master of Horror, you were able to pull together an all-star team. But at the same time, there's a real sense of family. Like, I, I, again, it's the stuff of legend now, these Master of Horror dinners, which, are, which you're the MC apparently, yeah. and have been described as, I think it was the one they had for Toby Hooper's, the memorial one, 
as the nicest man in the world, which is a pretty, you know, it's... Well, I would say Toby to. was pretty much the nicest man in the world. But tell, talk to people about and tell us about them. Well, these started, um, a lot of us know each other just as friends, either from uh, living in the same town, working in the same business, but directors never work together, but we'll often see each other at events like this, at festivals like this, and often people would say, you know, we all ought to get together for a dinner sometime, ha, 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 and thought, yeah, that'd be a great idea, but nobody was doing anything about it. And I decided that, well, maybe something should be done. And I spent about a week trying to get a group of us together. And it started with a dozen of us. It was me and John Landis and Guillermo del Toro and Toby Hooper and John Carpenter and Stuart Gordon. I mean, it really, if a bomb had fallen, there'd never be another good horror film. <laughs> um, and Everybody had such a good time. It wasn't networking. Nobody was looking to try and create anything out of it other than just camaraderie. And the second one that I put together, it took me an hour to set it up because everybody really had a good time. But it had been going, it has been going on for like 15, more than 15 years. It started, that's the Masters of Horror series, was birthed out of those relationships. And, um, it's, the last one was for Toby. It's been a while since we've done it. And we had 35 directors there um, to pay homage to our fallen friend. Uh, it, it's actually a very emotional camaraderie. It's a friendship that you don't expect to find. And because filmmakers don't work together other than occasionally I will bring friends in to do cameo performances or they will do the same, to see how other people within the genre or filmmakers of any stripe work differently from one another because there is no rule book. Um, so, uh, but it's, it's an opportunity for people, you know, I'm sure dentists have dinners together um, and, and so why not horror directors? And it's really more social than anything, but it became something really surprisingly emotional. It's a tribe, it's your tribe. It is our tribe and yet, it's, it's not an exclusive kind of thing. It is in that, you know, we don't, it is all filmmakers. It's not, there's no partners. There's no husbands or wives or things like that because it would turn into 70 people instead of 35 people. And, and it's all people who have a lot in common to talk about. And, and just, um, it, it's really kind of special. What do you talk yeah. about? What do you talk about? Um, everything uh, from everybody's really supportive if somebody has a movie coming out everybody's mm -hmm. on their side and that's not the usual in, in the world of Hollywood it's very competitive and cutthroat and this genre because we all live in the, that gutter we mentioned earlier we're united we're a bunch of outsiders and we're together it's why there are horror festivals and not western festivals or drama festivals or comedy festivals um, it, it's a group of outsiders who love them and who make them. And we are still outsiders despite the success of our genre in recent years. And it bonds us. And we talk, but we talk about that, but we also talk about some movies we've seen, experiences we've had. And it's not just about the work that we do. We're, we're friends and not just friends uh, in a production capacity, but as human beings as well. So we talk about whatever anybody would talk about. And then you again, so you've been drawn to the anthology, like that's the thing is that you've cast 
your fellow filmmakers many times in your own films. Um, and also you've been drawn to the anthology format on, and it sounds like such a great, uh, the, I always read about the experience of Masters of Horror where you literally had, every couple of weeks you had Dario Argento landing or you had, you were able to just bring this incredible collective. I feel like it was almost ahead of its time in this period of peak TV that we're yeah. in now, it was quite a, you know, a innovator in that way. But um, what, what is, you know, in terms of yourself, you are keeping, you know, you started off, you been a journalist, you, you were an interviewer, there's an amazing, you have your amazing archive online of all the interviews that you shot through the 80s. Has anyone seen Mick's interview with um, John Landis, um, David Cronenberg, and, and John Carpenter, Carpenter from 1982, where they all get together and they have a few little movies coming out that summer, like amazing, you have it created video this. Drum, The Thing, and American Werewolf in London, we were all talking about those films, so it was a rather remarkable year. Uh, it's MickGarrisInterviews.com is where you can get the video interviews that I've done, other than the podcast. And for you, has it always just been about kind of, because even the podcast now, the one thing that it comes from, the great chats, the podcast, they're really good, you get to know people, like Carpenter, again, we were talking a little bit earlier, he seems to want to talk about anything but movies, yeah. but you get a great conversation. And there's an amazing one with David Cronenberg that you just did a few weeks ago, and there was a screening of, what was it? Um, Dead Ringers. Dead Ringers. Yeah. Which is my favorite of his films. It's ama amazing. And so for you, is it about that conveying your own enthusiasm? Because the thing I sense from your own is your own enthusiasm for the genre and for the filmmakers. You're a champion for all these people as well. I, I never set out to be an ambassador of horror or the Forrest Gump of horror. <laughs> but... Um, that's it. Uh, we'll go with the Peter Wadanovich. Yeah, we'll go, with, yeah, that. We'll go with that. Yeah. But, you know, it is something I love, and most of everything is shit. Most horror movies are shit. But. If anything you remember tonight, most of everything is shit. Yeah. Just remember that. <laughs> yeah. um, but when it's transcendent, that 10% that is really wonderful and special is more special than anything else on, on film or digital media or whatever you want to say because there's so much more imagination in it, because it feels personal, because the drama, the fears represented feel real to you and express those that you feel inside. Um, and it's a genre that I do love. I'd love to do things outside of the, the horror genre, and when you have some success within it, it is often a ghetto, and it becomes a prison, but I think it's something that to be proud of, to do something special within this genre is so difficult to do because of outside influences like studios believing that it's entirely intended for teenagers and it's just meant for opening weekend box office. I've learned by going to festivals around the world that only in North America is horror strictly for teenagers and that adult horror is something that's really important because it embraces things that, that are universal within us and not just fears of boogeymen, but something much deeper than that. And I love the genre and the opportunity with the podcast and with Nightmare Cinema and before that, Masters of Horror and Fear Itself, um, the opportunity to give these people who really should command our respect the respect that they deserve in letting them tell stories their way um, and being a cheerleader to protect them from those people who try to keep them from doing it that way. And with the podcast in particular, to have conversations just one-on-one -on -one for an hour and not tied to the release of a movie this weekend and not trying to promote anything, but to just have a conversation about a career, what drives them, what inspires them, because that inspires me. I've learned something from every one of those podcasts. 
And I always want to be in a state of creative and human evolution. And this allows me to do that. And I, a lot of them are, are veteran filmmakers, but a lot of them are new, like Coralie Fargia and, and Mike Flanagan and, and, and people who are injecting something really new and, and filled with life into a genre that needs it, that in the US was moribund for years. And, and to be able to be excited about it, I'm constantly learning and growing and evolving. And I love that I can contribute to horror cinema history by having these documents that'll be there forever. You talk about something that's 35 years old that's online with these three guys talking horror movies and we all look like we should be our sons, but, but it's something kind of special. It's a document that will stay there that you can learn something from and it's really entertaining. Most of these guys are great storytellers because that's what they do for a living, but stories that you never hear them tell. And it is the 30th anniversary of Critters 2 this year. It is. It's pretty yeah, momentous in the world. Critters of 2, please. <laughs> yes. That was, your first, that was your first directing. Feature film. Yeah, feature. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and uh, usually it's referred to as the timeless classic Critters 2. No, no, no. I, I will forget. Yes. Is that the one with DiCaprio in it? No, that's the third one. That's yes, the third, third, yeah. No, the third shitty one. Yeah. The third uh, shitty one, yeah. <laughs> No, uh, it was my first Ladies feature. Ladies and gentlemen, Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> <laughs> nice to have met you once. Uh, it, it was my first feature and a real opportunity to do something, and, and to date my only comedy. Whether you think it's funny or not is up to you. You'll see it later. And like you're still, you've been directing, is it Once Upon a Time, the TV show? Yeah, so yeah. You're, still, you're working on a huge uh, show. You still like to mix it up. You're still working on projects like this that are, and presumably this is essentially a labor of love, putting a project like Nightmare Cinema together. Nightmare Cinema is my baby. I've been trying to get this together since uh, Masters of Horror ended. I wanted to do something more international. Uh, and there were a lot of different approaches to it and we ended up with this. Um, but yeah, the Once Upon a Time was an amazing experience. Um, I didn't think I'd want to direct episodes of other people's shows because you hear all the stories about them. A director's just the traffic cop, the writers, the producers uh, uh, in television series are king. And that is true about the last part, but they've completely encouraged me to do my work my way. But I'm a very collaborative person as well, but I'm, I'm telling fairy tale stories that I've never done before, something outside of a wheelhouse that I'm kind of used to and try to inject freshness into. Uh, with a cast of people like Robert Carlyle and all who are, are, are remarkable, uh, being able to work with the most modern technology, young casts, um, and, and to work with really interesting uh, projects that, that I wouldn't have done otherwise. I mean, I did an episode of Pretty Little Liars, and I had a great time doing it, and I learned a lot from it. So, uh, you know, to be able to, to have opportunities like this, and you're in and out pretty quickly, you know, mm -hmm. three weeks uh, prepping and shooting and four days of editing, and then it's back in their hands. And it's, it's very freeing to, to do the work and then to leave the work as well and go on to the next one. So uh, I, not everybody who has been doing it as long as me gets the opportunity to continue doing that. And I, I just feel really lucky to be able to do that, and, and I, I work hard to create projects of my own, like Mas uh, Nightmare Cinema. 
And you're on a working holiday. You're working while you're here. Yeah, it's not yeah. Since he's been here, he's been working on a script. He kind of hit the ground. It's true. Hit the ground it's running. Yeah. What keeps you enthusiastic? That's the thing, is that because you're, you know, you're 30 years in as a working filmmaker, you've got all these different projects on the go. You know, what, what are you still excited about? What, you know, in the morning when you sit down, you create stuff. You've worked with so many different franchises, so many different other people's work, but you're creating constantly yourself. What, what keeps you in it? You know, I would do this if it weren't my job. And uh, I write because I love to write, and I'm 100 pages into a new novel. I've written several books as well. Um, and the process itself keeps me excited. Um, I don't know what I would do if I weren't doing that. Um, I would not be very good in a shop. Uh, I, I would be a terrible businessman. But I'm lucky enough that... And not, you know, making a podcaster, making a living as a podcaster is not really possible. And it's not why I do it, but I do it to learn. I write to learn and to hopefully share something that, that people will find interesting and engaging. And just the creative process. I started writing when I was 12 years old, seriously writing. I drew before that. My father was a trained uh, artist who never made a living doing it, but had gone to art school and was quite accomplished but never made his living doing that. So that's where I leaned first. But I, I found writing kind of overtook me and, and it's my hobby and fortunately uh, one of my sources of income. So I, I just feel very fortunate and, and I feel the need to have creative output. And I go next door to my office, next to my house every day. And um, sometimes it's writing, sometimes it's just communicating with other people who have ideas that that I love, or it's it's reading something, or or it's planning the next podcast. But I, I like activity, and and I like to be engaged. And I can't imagine a time where where I'd want to retire from that and go golfing. The, Maybe in Ireland in golfing. Yes, but never time to go golfing. It's, it's okay. In yeah. terms of your own, uh, you know, oeuvre, um, what is your favorite? Like that's the thing is that you've done. There was a point like the stand was a huge project. And it was at a time when it played to it was playing to like twenty million people. It was like a huge fifty. Fifty million people. In the, in, in North America each okay. night. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and it that, went up each of the four nights. It's it's kind of historic. Yeah. And and that's the thing is that it's it's you know, you've you've communicated to that mass audience. You've worked, you've done this you've worked in the studio system, you've done sleepwalkers, you've done like a big move for Columbia, you've worked in the independent sector, you can still work within the you you traverse all these different worlds. But if you were to say... Not always by choice, mind you. <laughs> but it's, you've got to be, uh, presumably, you've got to be adaptable. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. But what's the, if people were to say, okay, there's a Mick Garris, you know, this is my movie. This is, if you want to say a movie that this is the most fully realized thing that has managed to just channel all of my skills. And because the thing is, is that I think you've done pieces like Psycho 4, which are, you know, it's like very psychological. It's a real character piece. And it's beautiful. Anthony Perkins is... It's amazing in it that even that late in the day, he plays, you know, he plays it so beautifully, and he's, yeah. you know, it's not a parody. He's still profoundly it's not. invested. And that in was it, that know? was a choice, especially after Psycho Three went, kind of verged on and two to a lesser extent, but kind of camped up mm. uh, the character of Norman Bates and Psycho Four. I wanted to pull that back. Yeah. And even with the King, so what if you saying like I'm Mick Garris, and people go, hey, I've never seen any of your movies. You go, okay, you got to see. What's the one you give them? 
I know um, wow. Steve Walkers is coming out on the Screen Factory are doing like the Criterion of Horror are doing yeah. a special edition of it and it's a movie that's grown in reputation and people love the movie over the years and people get to see it this weekend which is fantastic. So we go, which are the well, ones that you're proudest of? It's weird because that one was actually a huge hit. It was mm. the number one, number movie, one movie when it came out and now it's kind of coming back into its success. Whereas Critters 2 was a disaster if a $4 million movie can be a disaster. Um, we love Critters 2. Yeah, well, We're not going to hear a bad word about Critters 2. No. Too. Neither, we had the discussion about The Fly 2 earlier as well. Well, that one, you can disparage. <laughs> We're saying the stuff we, anything you like about The Fly 2, definitely Mick. Yeah. Anything yeah. you don't like about The Fly 2, Frank Darabont. Fuck <laughs> that, that guy. What happened to him? Yeah, yeah. So, but what's the, yeah, so where's the. Well, the most personal one to me, and it may not be the best movie or the best in, in, indication of what, um, is Riding the Bullet, which was a Stephen King adaptation of a 30 page short story that I took great liberties with, other than that part of it, set it 30 years earlier. Um, and I was dealing with uh, a death of a parent and of a brother at that time. I've since lost another brother and a sister a couple of months ago. Um, and the idea of taking death seriously for someone who makes a living off of portraying death in uh, very um, operatic terms and how much fun horror movies are and the like, it was a bit more contemplative about that. It's my least successful movie commercially ever, so naturally that's the one. Um, the Stand was a cultural phenomenon. Uh, it, it made, it broke records as far as viewership for a miniseries on, on network TV in, in the States. Um, so it's the biggest success. And working with Stephen King for that period of time, The Shining is probably the most polished in terms of filmmaking and the like, and something I'm, I'm very, very proud of, because we weren't running all over the country shooting two or three locations a day. We were in Colorado, and we were either in a studio or we were in the hotel, and we were able to have time designing every shot and making it look as good as it could be. But also the books. I mean, there's a novel I wrote called Salome that I think is really representative of, of where I am. But the, the movie that's most personal to me. Um, and again, it may not be your favorite, and it may not be mine, but it's the most personal is Riding the Bullet. That's the one everyone has to go and watch now. Yeah, which none of you have seen, right? Oh, one. <laughs> okay, oh, you Mom, can... you were here. Um, the, big, the biggest question to really know is who is the biggest diva on Masters of Horror? Who is the biggest diva? Yeah. You had them all coming in. You had Argento, you had Carpenter, you had Landis. You, had, you know, you know there's an interesting it's like the all-stars. Interesting thing about the horror genre is that because we are niche and we are outsiders, there's very little diva activity there. Much more in front of the camera than behind the camera. And, uh, and this is a man who's just made a movie with Mickey Rourke. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and you'll be seeing that shortly. Um, that was actually a great experience. I'd heard really terrifying things about him. And uh, one of the producers uh, has, uh, was friends with him and recommended him for the part. And the idea of getting an Academy Award nominee, great actor, uh, to play this part was fantastic commercially. And for me, uh, creatively a great idea, but also a very intimidating idea. I heard stories 
uh, from people who had worked with him and let's just say had not had the greatest experiences of their careers. And uh, so I was a little frightened of it, but he was great. You know, he was really fun to work with. I don't think he expected to have a good time. He didn't work long on it, but um, he came to the set just ready to do a job. But we really had a good time. He had a great time doing it. 10 o'clock at night, though, I'm done. So that was it. But, but as far as the directors on Masters of Horror, um, there were no divas. Such a pro. Such a <laughs> I would tell you if there were. And in a project like this, did you, you, know, you end up with a really interesting uh, mix of directors. Was there a thing of like at a certain point there's X amount of filmmakers in the mix or were these the guys who fell into place or were these guys always, because you have someone like uh, David, Spade, or David Slade who's phenomenal and hasn't made enough movies, you yeah. know, yeah. Um, you've, you've Joe, you know, you've true masters of horror there, Joe, Joe Dante, Dante, you know, yeah. you've the, you know, and there's such a lovely mix well, in the film, was it like you had 20 and you and these are the guys you ended up with, are we going to see, is this the first of a series? Are we going to bring Masters of Horror back? Who wants to see Masters of Horror back? Who wants to see it? Not with that title. And Ed knows why. Um, <laughs> um, every one of the directors, this is going to sound ridiculous and like bullshit, but every one of those directors was the first one I asked. They, I never went beyond the other four. Um, and one of the reasons was, this was always planned to be something very international. Um, and I wanted directors, because it's not called Masters of Horror, they don't have to be household names. Mm -hmm. uh, Joe Dante is a household name, particularly in this crowd here. Uh, and, and Joe knew that he would be commercially helpful for us getting it off the ground. Um, and he's a great filmmaker, and we'd worked together before. Uh, I wrote an Amazing Stories episode that he directed back in the 80s. So, but I had met him when he had just made Piranha, and we'd been friends since then. Um, and then Alejandro Brugues, I had loved Juan, Juan of the Dead uh, and knew he would bring something very original and unique to it. And I wanted a Latino. I wanted a mix of different cultures. Ryuhei Kitamura and I had worked together on a script that hasn't been made yet. I loved Midnight Meat Train and Versus and to have a Japanese director. And his episode was written by a Mexican writer who lives in Mexico City. It was her first script in English. So we had a really nice cultural mix. David Slade from the UK, I, I loved Hard Candy so mm -hmm. much. And, um, and all of his work uh, on, on Hannibal, Hannibal was yeah. amazing, American mm -hmm. Gods. Uh, mm -hmm. He's just an incredible filmmaker and his, his black mirror was in black and white and was really remarkable. He shot his Nightmare Cinema episode in black and white as well, as you will see. Um, so they were all first choices. What we would like this to do is to spawn a series like Masters of Horror, but would be much more a mix of international filmmakers and uh, uh, a one-hour anthology series. If not, Nightmare Cinema 2, perhaps, Nightmare Cinema 3. What's great about this is that it's not a plot that gets tired because they're all original stories that are unrelated. So we could do 10 Nightmare Cinema anthology movies and not go back, uh, tread the same ground each time. It's not, <clears throat> it's not a franchise uh, in the sort that you have the same characters or plot or setup or conditions. 
So what you're saying is basically you're here because tonight you're going to meet an Irish filmmaker. There you go. And you're going to get him to be in the next. So there, it's destiny. I know Corin Hardy. <laughs> so it's it's yeah. great to have you here. I think it's time to watch the movie. We watch the movie. Excellent. Yes. And yeah. right. uh, Mick is going to be around. We're going to try. I think what we wanted to talk beforehand because I wanted to talk about your career. Uh, Mick is going to stick around and hopefully hang for a little bit afterwards and yeah. chat away. He'd love to chat about the movie. And then, um, and then before Critters too, we'll talk a little about that too. We can. Do you know? To be honest, you can never talk enough about Critters too. That's, that's the thing. <laughs> I found that to be the case. And this, by the way, is the 30th anniversary, so it's it's very special. It's Don Opperlove. Don Opperlove. Opper Don Opperlove. Opper yeah, there you um, go. So, just again, we're so thrilled to have this man here. He's a Absolute gentleman, and it's great to be able to share this movie with you. So let's watch Nightmare Cinema, and thank you very much for now. Thank you. Thank you.